Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Been a hot summer and no, we're not going to need air conditioning this week. It's episode 328 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. It's been an amazing first season of DC's Stargirl and the finale is actually happening this week. So I thought who better to bring on to talk about that than Neil Jackson himself. That's right. Icicle will give us all the cool details on what's happening on the finale, we'll tease a little bit. Of course, you might be listening to this after the finale airs. You might be listening to it before. So we're not going to spoil the finale for you. Don't worry, but I can't wait to talk about talk to Neil Jackson about everything that's happened with Icicle in this season. I really want to dig deep into some stuff that I've been thinking about while I've been watching this season of DC's Stargirl. Going to actually switch things up a little bit as far as the format of the show this week. Move some stuff around. Going to try something different. So actually, up next is going to be my spoiler-filled review of Season 2 of Netflix's Umbrella Academy. We'll kick that off next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, it's Larissa Tronco from Netflix's The Order, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's time to save the world again, this time with Season 2 of the Umbrella Academy. Hey, how about a spoiler-filled review of Season 2? Now, I'm not going to go through absolutely Everything that's involved in season two, you know what's happening. They've been dropped in 1960s Dallas. The the kids, I guess you could call them the, the, the members of the Umbrella Academy, right? Been dropped in 1960s Dallas because they're trying to stop yet another apocalypse after trying to avoid the last one. And, you know, it's, it's five that's trying to bring them all together. But what I want to do is I want to go through some of the stuff that really worked for me in this season. And one of the things that really worked was the fact that this was, you know, they were never necessarily a tight knit family, but it seems like they were really, really just not getting along at all for a lot of this season and almost seemed like wanted nothing to do with each other. Certainly nothing to do with five's plan anyway. So that, I mean, that was certainly part of it, but then when you see them, it's like when they really need each other, right? This was kind of confirmed this season. Once they really need each other, they're there for each other, and they really do love each other. That That's the thing that, that kind of gets me, right, is that you, you finally see that, right, with this family. You go, well, you know what? They might seem like they hate each other, but they really don't sort of thing. Uh, like, like with especially with, like, Luther and Vanya, where it looks like Luther's going to go kill Vanya, right? And after everything that happened... He ends up forgiving her, and not just because she didn't have her memory anymore, just because, you know, she he just decided that, you know, he loved his sister or he adopted sister, however you want to go ahead and put that. But but still, he he just decided, like, I'm not going to kill my sister. I'm just not going to do it. So that was one of the things that I, I thought was really neat about this season. And I got to say, I was one of the things I was concerned with was the new characters, right? Like, how do you work in? new characters and make it make sense. Well, one of the things that made it made sense was the fact that, you know, these everybody was kind of starting new lives with one another, right? You know, everybody had their own life because they didn't land there together 
in the 60s. They kind of landed there apart. So you've got Allison, who's married to Ray Chestnut. He's an activist. And, you know, they're trying to, you know, bring social change in 1960s Dallas. Not an easy thing to do. And I thought, you know, that's a it was a very timely thing to be talking about, first of all. And second of all, I thought they dealt with it pretty well. I mean, that's it's obviously something that's that's difficult to deal with, to difficult to portray historically accurate. But I think they did a pretty decent job with with what they with the, what they portrayed, especially with like the lunch counter protests and things like that. I think they did a really good job with it. And I loved the character of Raymond Chestnut. I thought Yusef Gatewood did a great, great job, and just the the chemistry between he and Allison was just off the charts so, to the point like when when they were upset with each other and it looked like things just like weren't going to work out right it made me uncomfortable I'm like no 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 this is the, i love this couple I'm, I'm i'm as the kids say i'm shipping this why why are we no let's not throw any friction in there and you know married couples like even though the the best of married couples are going to have spats from time to time you know but this one it made me uncomfortable <laughs> i didn't like it i'm like no 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 i don't want to do this why are we doing this? So I really liked that. Another thing that I really liked was Sissy's character and that relationship that developed with with Vanya. And, and then you bring Harlan into the mix as well, her son, and, you know, portraying a child with special needs, which I thought they did a very good job with as well. I also have a child with special needs, so this kind of hit home a little bit for a little bit more for me. And just the way that they portrayed the mother's struggle Especially, imagine having to deal with that without the resources that we have now in the 1960s. And it was incredible that, you know, having Vanya there really made such a difference, not just for the child, but for the mother as well. And it didn't help the father was a complete dirtbag. So that's one of the things that kind of made that relationship grow. And then you see it you see at the end when they, when they kind of go off and, and Sissy and, and, and Harlan go to make a new life with each other in, in California. And that kind of breaks your heart. A little bit, right? But I, I'm feeling that this is not the last we're going to see of Harlan. No doubt about it. I mean, that hey, I'm just saying. I, I'm not. I'm. I. I think that if there is a season three, and I think there will be, I think Harlan's going to be a big part of it. I don't care what what point in the timeline that they're in. But I'll get to the end here in a second. I thought the whole thing with Klaus's cult was hilarious. I thought the whole storyline was hilarious. But then you see him try to save. Dave, which I thought was, again, it breaks your heart, right? But at the same time, it's like, you guys don't learn anything about screwing with the timeline, do you? And, and I'll get to that again here in the, at the end of the second. But you know, the, like the joke in the nerd world, right? Every time something gets messed up, you go, damn it, Barry, and you blame it on Barry Allen, right? You blame it on The Flash. Well, what? what I think we need to say, you know, damn it, Hargreaves, or damn it, Umbrella Academy, because they're the ones that seem to screw up the timeline royally more than anybody else. And cause, you know, apocalypse after apocalypse, too, by the way. Let's just let's just put that out there right now. But one of my favorite new characters had to be Lila Pitts. I mean, Ritu Arya did so, oh, just such a fantastic... I loved just that, you know, no-filter type character in the beginning. Then you find out, you know, she's kind of with the... Com well, with the commission, but not with the commission, right? Because she was the handler's quote-unquote daughter... Until she found out, that, oh, by the way, the woman that was my adopted mother killed my entire family. And, and you know, it was actually five. It was five that did the killing, wasn't it? I'm pretty sure that it was. So she finds out that, you know, Mommy Dearest isn't exactly Mommy Dearest. And she was just using her for her powers. Again, breaks your heart. 
a little bit, right? So, but just the way, and the way her and Diego played off of each other, especially in the beginning, I really, really liked. So these new characters really worked out for the Umbrella Academy way better than I would have thought. Especially, and then Luther working for Jack Ruby, I thought that was interesting. And I get, and like when Diego sees Grace, when he sees Mom for the first time in the earlier timeline, how he reacts to that. And of course, she has no idea what's going on, right? Why would she? So to see the look on his face when he sees her for the first time, I mean, that was that was an interesting scene right there as well. But I, I mean. This show was a lot of fun once again, but again, like I said, there were plenty of heartbreaking moments, but then you see the family come together, right? And and for the whole greater good thing, but you still see, you know, that five was manipulated by the handler and, and you, you knew that though, didn't you? Like, and five even kind of knew that he's like, I don't want to make this deal because I know how this is going to go. And it's kind of, exa- it went almost exactly the way he thought. It was going to go, but I want to skip ahead here to the end because, again, the timeline changed. Now they're back where they're supposed to be, right? But they're, now there's no Umbrella Academy. It's the Sparrow Academy, and Reginald Hargreaves is alive. By the way, not their dad anymore. Ben is alive. He's a member of the Sparrow Academy. Seems different, Right. And, you know, maybe Mr. Hargreaves isn't exactly what we think he is either. So there's just a lot of questions that were left by that finale. Now, if you do the math, right, Harlan, if you take from 19, what, 1963, Dallas, you you ballpark Harlan's age at like, like maybe say eight, between eight and 10. So you fast forward 50 plus years. So he'd be in his 60s, maybe almost 70 at the time of this timeline, is he still alive? Is he, how much has he aged? Is he going to be an old man? Because you see that uh, Reginald Hargraves didn't age a ton in that amount of time, right? And he was certainly older. So there, there's a lot of questions to be answered there. Will we see Sissy again? And there, there's so many other things that we need to find out as far as just that family is concerned, right? But, it just feels like to me, if we're going to have a season three, we're moving away from the apocalypse storyline, right? We're almost moving moving to the whole, what is the Sparrow Academy? Is the Sparrow Academy not going to be an adversary for the Hargreaves family, which maybe is not a family anymore? And is that reality going to hit them? Are they going to feel like they're not a family because of what's happened? Or are they going to feel more like a family than they did before? Is this something that's going to bring them Closer together because it's not like it's the first time they've been shunned by their father, right? It's not like their father was a super loving dude. And then all of a sudden they return to the, this new timeline. It's like, oh, by the way, I'm not your dad. Bye. You know, there's obviously going to be some feelings towards that. But at the same time, this wasn't a caring guy to begin with. So it's not like, you know, they're missing out on a whole lot when it comes to this. But how much has the timeline changed? What's the commission going to look like now that they've got somebody new in charge? And, you know, what is that? How does that affect the timeline? Because, you know, they're supposed to be the ones that are kind of policing this stuff. And how is that going to work now? There's a lot of stuff that needs to be answered. But again, you know, the Umbrella Academy, you love it for the way it was in season one. There were those vibes were carried into season two. 
as far as I'm concerned. I still think season one was probably better than season two, even though I enjoyed some of the newer characters a little bit more in season two. But it feels like we're moving away and we're moving, we're turning the page going into season three. And that might actually be a good thing for the Umbrella Academy. I think they've gotten all they can out of the storyline with the time traveling and the apocalypse. It's time to try something new. I think there's absolutely going to be a third season. This hugely popular show. I don't see them getting rid of it like Freeform gets rid of their shows. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But I, I just I think that this was a, another home run for the Umbrella Academy, for Netflix. I can't wait for them to announce that there's a season three because I know it's coming. It's just a matter of time. If you haven't watched this season yet, season two of Umbrella Academy, you're going to want to definitely do that. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Umbrella Academy season two. Up next, yeah, we're doing a different format this week. Our feature segment, our interview with Neil Jackson, who plays icicle Jordan McKent on DC's Stargirl. It's coming up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Nelson Lee from DC's Stargirl, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You know how happy I was about the part part one of the Stargirl finale this past week. So part two is coming up on Monday on DC Universe, Tuesday on the CW. And who better to talk about that with than the leader of the ISA himself? It's Neil Jackson. How you doing, Neil? I'm good, mate. How are you, James? I'm doing fantastic. Before we really dive into the season, you, you guys did something really fun. You actually got to do an Instagram takeover on the DC Stargirl page. And then today they released this statement saying they apologize for the hostile <laughs> hack of their Instagram. So how much fun are you guys having over there? That was a blast. They asked me like a week and a half ago if I wanted to do the takeover for the CW Stargirl page. And my gut reaction was I didn't because it's been taken over by um, most of the other cast, especially the kids, Breck and, and, and Cameron, Meg and everybody. And they've kind of done everything. A lot of the exposés and behind the scenes and everything else had already been kind of done. So I was like, I don't know what I can contribute to this. So I was talking to my publicist, Craig Schneider, and I, and I was like, I don't know what I can contribute. Let me think on it for a day. And I kind of noodled around with that. I was like, what if I did it as a hostile takeover? Because what if I did it under the guise of the ISA? And uh, we've got hackers in the ISA with the gambler, um, played by Eric Goins. And I said, okay, let me reach out to these guys and let's see if we can do this fun sort of hostile takeover. And as I started talking to them, ideas beget ideas beget ideas. And before I knew it, I had like, I don't know how, what I posted yesterday. I think there was maybe 12 or 14 videos that I posted and a couple of IG chats that were so much fun to do as a, as a kind of wink to the audience and to the fans, but also uh, sort of cheeky, comedic, behind-the-scenes looks at things. And, and, and it, I love the fact that you said that they, re, they released this retraction. That was actually me. That was part of the takeover oh, nice. that I did. I've always loved uh, sort of the Orson Welles, uh, War of the Worlds idea that people might buy into the fact that something is real. Mm -hmm. And so it was always my plan at the end of the takeover, having done this sort of fun thing, to release my own CW retraction apologizing for the hack just to kind of complete the, uh, the 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 joke. I love it. I love it. Now let's dive into the character here for a minute because, Neil, one of the things I've struggled with all season long watching Jordan is how much he seems to be, like like he's a caring person with a soul, but he also like murders people. So I, it's really hard for me because I like him and then I, and then I don't like him. It's really hard. So I had this push and pull with the character. So how do you did you feel when you were kind of learning about him in the early going? 
what you just talked about there is one of the things I fell in love with with, with Jordan. Um, Jeff Johns, who's the creator of the show, uh, we've been friends for a long time, me and him. And he called me in January 2019 and said they're making the show. He'd love me to play Jordan McKent, a.k.a. Icicle. And he pitched me over the phone, the character. And um, he barely finished the pitch before I said I'm in. And it was the fact that Jordan, from his perspective, is a hero. He, he suffered this terrible, terrible loss with the death of his wife. You say death, but it was the murder of his wife at the hands of um, some pharma company who were illegally dumping toxic waste that caused her to get cancer. And so he made it his personal mission to not only get retribution for her death, but her dying wish was to make sure that the world was a better place for their son. And then she whispers and destroy anyone who gets in the way of that. And so he made it his personal mission to also make sure that the world society is a better place for everyone and because he has access to all of these amazing villains in quotations who have these incredible powers he put together this plan of project new america where he would use his significant financial means and business prowess to try to enact change by helping impoverished communities but then on the other side of it he's which has been released um, in the show he um is going to use Brainwave's power and various other people's power to hack into the minds of America and change them for the better, basically eradicating global warming, eradicating prejudice, racial prejudice, gender prejudice, sexual prejudice. So essentially just making communities a far better place. And when you hear about that plane, you're like, it doesn't sound like he's a bad guy. Now, of course, 25% of the minds that he's wanting to convert will be too resistant and will end up dying. Right. So 25 million people will die as a result of his plan, which isn't the best kind of solution. No, not really. <laughs> but you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. <laughs> so I, I, I loved it. I was just like, I, I, I get it. I get his pain. I get his drive. I get his motivation. I, I love the plan that he's trying to force through. Yes, his means aren't necessarily the most attractive or savory, but I also understand them. I mean, if somebody had done that to the woman that I love and I could sit in front of them and just blow out cold air and freeze them from the inside, mm -hmm. it would be pretty hard to not want to give them that ultimate sort of comeuppance. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Let's talk about Jordan, the father, for a second, because we know that he clearly has a special relationship with his son, Cameron. But at the same time, we saw in, in part one, his Jordan's parents said, you know, it's time to tell Cameron who your who his family really is because this is his birthright and you see Jordan he's very hesitant to this so where do you think that that hesitation actually comes from what is, what do you think is the main reason behind that hesitation protection it's all about protection he wants to protect his son everything that he's doing is to try to protect his son and make sure that his son doesn't suffer the injustice that his wife did that's why he formed the injustice society in the first place and so he knows that when his son finds this out, and it may be inevitable, we, we, we got a little hint in one episode when Cameron blew out the candles on the birthday cake that there was a little frost to his breath. So it's implied that he's going to inherit Jordan's abilities, but we don't know for certain that that's the case yet. So I think Jordan is just trying to protect his son, and if his son doesn't inherit these abilities, he doesn't need to be burdened with the full enormity of the truth. So he's just trying to protect him. Absolutely. During part one of the finale, I thought one of the best scenes was when the JSA actually finds out what Project New America is all about and then their reaction to it. And then as, as fans, I mean, I think we kind of had 
the same or similar reaction. So when you read that script for the first time, what was your reaction? And did you kind of have that same feeling like, wow, this is different. This is something you don't see from, like you said, quote, villains usually. Yeah, completely. And it was one of the things I loved. I mean, this was all an initial pitch that Jeff gave me over the phone when he talked to me about doing the, the character. And I've always been on the side of, of course, I, do, I don't judge any character that I play. I played a whole, whole host of villains, some particularly unlovable and, 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 and some that kind of dance the moral line. So I never judge them. But the first thing I, I thought when I heard Jordan is like, this plan sounds like it's feasible and something that, yes, there's death, but it's definitely relatable and something that several people might get behind and think actually it's a good thing. So I love the fact that it's explained in such a way to the audience through the JSA. I mean, I love that line of our man played by Cameron Gelman, where he's just like, uh, are you sure we're on the right side here? Right. I love that because, yeah, once you start explaining universal health care and end to global warming, end to prejudice, um, nicer communities, all this, all this stuff sounds like it's the, we all have to a greater or lesser degree this sort of, Norman Rockwell ideal of what we'd love communities to be, you know, in, in all of our films and the nostalgia, we, we, we hark back to something that probably didn't really exist, but this romanticized idea of loving communities that just want to get along, that there's no room for prejudice or hate, and everybody's sort of in this one communal space of, of, of happiness and togetherness. And if somebody could do that with a flip of a switch and it takes 30 minutes, I think that a lot of people might sign on. No doubt about it. We're talking to Neil Jackson, who, of course, plays Jordan McKenna Icicle on DC Stargirl. The the season one finale going to be happening Monday on DC Universe, Tuesday at 8 o'clock on The CW. Now, Neil, I've talked to several members of the cast this season, Angelica Washington, Trey Romano, Nelson Lee. They all told me the same thing. They say that Neil's such a nice guy, and it's amazing to see him kind of transform into this icicle character so is there anyone on set that you worked with this season that you were kind of amazed to watch them transform into their character yeah several people i mean we're really blessed on this show to have some incredible incredible actors and uh, i mean I'm, I'm dear friends with nelson me, me and nelson have been close friends for like um 15 years maybe he plays dragon king and his first scene as dragon king in in this show was a scene with jordan and it's so fun watching him, and he's an amazing actor. But when he becomes Dragon King, he has a normal register in his voice normally. But suddenly he drops down into this thing and becomes so creepy. Same with uh, Chris Baker. I lived with Chris Baker, who plays Brainwave, while we were in Atlantis filming. So the two of us shared an apartment together that we called The Lair. Um, nice. And we'd sit after work, have a couple of gins on the balcony and just put the world to rights, which was great. It was actually funny. I was I was back in Britain shooting um, Kingsman, this new film that's coming out in September. And so I was kind of darting back and forth for the, the initial month or so of filming Stargirl. And I came back the first time and um, arrived into the lair. And uh, Chris said, hey, check out your bathroom. I was like, why? And he said, I've, I've got you a shower curtain because there wasn't one. I walked in and the shower curtain was a tableau from the film Frozen. Awesome. And then I went into his bathroom <laughs> and his shower curtain was just a large brain. So he had this large brain with equations over it. I was like, that's amazing. But watching him, who was a very fun, lighthearted, very sarcastic person, suddenly become Brainwave, who is the epitome of sort of commitment to the cause. And he's so sinister. He he is phenomenal. So yeah, watching everybody kind of dip in. Meg, who is just sweet and light, but she becomes Shiv and you kind of she becomes the 
ultimate bitch you know she's everyone has a fantastic arc and and uh, it's been really fun watching the work that everyone's been doing Let's talk about Brainwave for a second, because, you know, Icicle's probably the most powerful of the group, I would say, just just by my opinion. But you can make the argument that Brainwave's clearly the most evil and the most dangerous of the group. So would you say that's the case, or is there another member of the ISA that you think might be even more dangerous? No, I, I completely concur with you on that. I mean, I actually think that he's the most powerful, just in terms of the abilities that he has, that he can infect the minds remotely of 100 million people. Jordan could never hope for that power. He's got to stand in proximity to people to, to have any effect. We've often joked that brainwave, he can just think about you and give you a brain aneurysm from streets and streets away. He's He's got scary power. And it's one of the brilliant things that Jeff did with the script. You set brainwave up in the first two episodes and you realize the power that he has and also the fact that he knows that Courtney Whitmore is Stargirl. So surely in episode three, that's the end of the season. Brainwave drives past their house, melts their brain, and then the show is over. And he brilliantly put Brainwave into a coma. So he took the most powerful mm-hmm. character off the board. But when Brainwave came back in the recent episodes, he made up for lost time. I mean, he is beyond committed to the cause that him and Jordan have been putting into effect for the last nine years. To the point that, spoiler alert, he killed his own son. So that's a level of commitment that Jordan isn't willing to go to. Jordan wouldn't take that ultimate sacrifice for the team. Now, Neil, we've seen other villains on DC TV series appear in multiple seasons before. We've seen Tobias Whale and Black Lightning, of course, Reverse Flash on The Flash and so on. So no spoilers for the finale here, of course, but I still the kind of villain you could kind of see continuing to combat the JSA in, in seasons and beyond. Is that something that you'd love to see, possibly? I'd love to see. I feel like we're just trying to scratch the surface of who this guy is. So, yeah, it'd be, it'd be amazing fun to see him come back for multiple episodes and maybe do crossovers. I mean, we're part of the CW now, so we're in the sort of Arrowverse CW family. So I, I could see him dipping into other adventures with the other soups on the shows. Now, Neil, before I let you go, I mean, anyone with eyes could see that Jordan was developing feelings for Barbara, especially as the season progressed, what was it about her that you think brought those feelings on? And how much can you actually tease for us about that scene that we saw in the trailer for part two of the finale where it looks like, you know, Jordan has Barbara, like, captured or something? How much can you tease for us leading into the finale? Well, yeah, firstly, I think that Jordan, when his wife died, when Christine died, he he closed off that part of himself. He closed off the romantic side of himself. And he's been very tunnel-visioned about enacting his plan and making people pay and everything else like that. And suddenly, out of nowhere, out of left field, comes this beautiful ray of sunshine that is Barbara Whitmore, played brilliantly by Amy Smart. And it just catches his breath. He hadn't thought romantically about anybody. And honestly, he'd been in this sort of depressed and depressive state for a long period of time, denying himself happiness. And there is this gorgeous ray of sunshine that just awakens a part of him that has been dormant for a long while. But the other side of it is, Jordan's commitment is to community and to family. So the last thing he'd want to do is to break up a family unit. So as much as he has desires, I don't think he would ever act upon those desires. And of course, now he can't because he finds out that the woman that he is admiring happens to be the mother of his nemesis. So um, it was never going to become something. But yeah, the, the, the end scene, that end, that scene that is teased in the, in the, trailer for the final episode was 
one of the harder and more fun scenes I had to do in the entire show because the tone of it is very, very interesting. And I'm choosing my words carefully not to spoil anything with anybody. But Jordan really wants her to understand what he's doing. Now that she's found out what the plan is, now that she's heard that he's icicle and heard all the, you know, the, the various different rumors about what an evil man he is, he wants her to see things from his perspective. It's a, it's a beautiful scene. I, can't, I haven't seen it yet, but I can't wait to see in the final edit. We can't wait either. We can't wait to watch the season one finale of DC Stargirl Monday on DC Universe and again Tuesday at 8 p.m. on The CW. You can actually also see Neil in The King's Man, like he said, September the 18th. And, of course, Amazon's Absentia, too, out right now. He's great in that, too. Make sure you're watching everything that this guy's involved with. It's Neil Jackson. Thank you so much for joining me this week. It's my absolute pleasure. Have an amazing day, dude. See, now I'm even more conflicted than I was before because how do you not love Neil Jackson after hearing him talk about Icicle, about Jordan McCann? I mean, how do you peg this guy? Is he a villain? Is he not a villain? Is he a, is he a good guy that's taken the wrong angle? There's just so many different layers to this character. It's so incredible on how Neil Jackson has been able to bring this out in season one of Stargirl has been absolutely amazing. And he's right, this cast, top to bottom, has been fantastic. So make sure you're watching the part two of the Stargirl season one finale on DC Universe on Monday and Tuesday on The CW. Make sure if you're watching it on DC Universe, though, you don't spoil it for anybody else on social media. Up next, how about we dive into some comics? It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Cullen Bunn, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you have a stack of long boxes or just a bunch of subfolders on your hard drive, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And going to jump back into Empire this week with Empire number four, of course. Al Ewing and Dan Slott doing the writing there. Al Ewing doing the story behind this. Valerio Shiti on the art. Marte Garcia on the colors. VC's Joe Caramagna on the letters. And Jim Chung and Guru EFX on the cover. Now, a little bit of spoilers here because there's already been three issues of Empire, and, you know, things have kind of started to unravel a little bit for everything that's going on. You've got the Kotati, who are now on Earth, trying to take Wakanda so they can get this vibranium-enriched soil, and pretty much they can control everything in the galaxy as far as plant life goes if they get that. So then you've got the Kree Skrull army, and Hulkling's basically saying, look, I'm not going to let them do this. So I'd rather blow up the sun and kill everyone than let them take this and and get this control. So then they, this is where things really start to to unravel. And I, this is where I'm really going to try not to spoil too much here. But I, I got to spoil a little bit. So you've got, obviously, I don't care what you want to call her. The Accuser, Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers. She's not just going to let somebody blow up the earth you know i mean it's uh, come on right this is captain marvel we're talking about this is this is not gonna happen she's got johnny storm by her side too so it's not like she has no backup at all let's just say that that disagreement doesn't go over well and they end up somewhere with another they end up somewhere else with someone very interesting that has an opinion on Hulkling and how he's going about things right now. Let's just put it that way. And, and things might not be as they seem. That's one. That's like the one thing we know for sure after reading this issue as well. Wow, there's a lot of stuff that we thought was one way. Maybe it's just not that way at all. So whether that be characters 
or certain settings or things that are going on. Yeah, it, there's a lot of craziness and a lot of stuff gets turned on its ear in this issue for sure. And then you've got, here's maybe a little bit of a spoiler, you've got Mantis who comes into this issue to try and talk some sense into the, her son, the leader of the Kotati. And that, again, doesn't go over very well. It seems like everybody's in an all or nothing type of stance wherever they're at here. And we do have a very surprising turn in this issue too. Somebody flips sides and it's very abrupt and it's very powerful. And I don't know how this is going to go over. Like this is a, this is such a big flip power wise. And it's like, okay, how are you going to come combat this? Because this is kind of a major change from one side to the other obviously with enough forces you could combat this but you know when when you've got your forces are divided at the moment it's it's a little bit difficult to to manage this and, I, and again i'm not I'm trying not to spoil too much because there's kind of a lot of stuff that happened in this issue as a matter of fact something that was teased for us in marvel 1000 gets confirmed in this issue by the way and that this is re- this is right at the end. So something that we thought happened, it did, it actually happened. And now we know that. And it could be the key to unlocking a lot of what's going on here. So again, the art is top notch on Empire. There's this one really though, story wise, took it up to the next level because everything that happened as far as the the crazy twists and turns, it it, it made sense. Where sometimes in these major storylines from Marvel, there could be some big twists, and it's like big twist for the sake of a big twist. But these ones actually had good surprise elements to them. They fit within the storyline. They made it make sense. There, we learned something about the Kotati and and the Skrulls that we didn't necessarily know at the time, or maybe you suspected, and it got confirmed for you. Especially with the Kotati, there's there's an element to what they're doing that we didn't know was really possible before. And now we know that there there really could be some stuff going on here that we don't know about or we didn't know about in the earlier issues anyway. So this is one that I'm glad it's coming out every week because having to wait for the next issue of this thing would be torture. So again, I just feel like Marvel's been killing it with Empire. This is one of their better major arcs in a long time, and I can't wait for the rest of it. If you're not reading this yet, make sure you get those back issues. You're going to want to get caught up on what's going on. Some of the tie-in stuff, too, is, is pretty good. But they do a pretty good job in the mainline story of letting you know what's going on without actually having to read the tie-ins. So if you want a little more, go for the tie-ins. If not, hey, just make sure you're reading Empire. Here's something I wanted to dive into because, I mean, Horizon Zero Dawn is such a gorgeous game. Why not do comics as well? So the first issue of that from Titan Comics did come out this week, and Ann Toole writing this one, and Molina doing the art, Brian Valenza on the colors, and Jim Campbell on the letters. The The story actually centers around a hunter named Talana, or Talana, excuse me, and also happens to be the tribal leader of the Hunter's Lodge, too, by the way. That's kind of an important part of this whole thing, and she's actually gone out to claim a bounty of her own and sort of get away from the politics, sort of clear head because, you know, things weren't, she was getting bored for lack of a better term. So 
It's not the kind of the head clearing experience that you'd hope for, though. And, you know, things like this rarely work out the way that you expect them to in comics. So now she has some company and, and she's not faring well. Let's just put it that way. She's also doing this to kind of keep her people safe, though. I mean, it, it might seem like she's doing it for other reasons, but it seems like she does genuinely want to keep the, her people safe. And, or maybe it's just to get away from the pressure of being Sunhawk. I, either way, I mean, she, her motives seem pure, but it's hard to tell for sure. I think mostly they are, but then there's also part of it where it's like there's something she doesn't want to admit, but we haven't quite gotten there yet in the story. There's also a bit of a flashback that happens toward the end of the story, and of course it introduces Horizon's most recognizable character. I don't think I need to tell you who that is. And talk about how deadly these claw striders that they're hunting really are. And I mean, it's a really cool looking character. As far as, you know, these these mechs go, this is a cool looking one. So I, I think you'll enjoy that, especially if you're a Horizon Zero Dawn fan. I think you'll enjoy these character designs for sure. This book sets up a really good hunt, okay? That much I can tell you. You're setting up a really good hunt, but it also is yet to kind of dig deeper into the true story, and that's what's going on in Meridian. And it's like a lot of stuff is teased, you know, it's mentioned in, in passing here and there. It seems like that should be a bigger part of the story than it actually is. And while the monster's kind of the shiny object, there's still a matter of what's going on in Meridian and the real reason that Talana has kind of left. And we don't really get to that yet. But, I mean, you got to leave something to the mystery. It is the first issue, after all. So that's one thing that needs to be dealt with. There's, there's enough here to warrant continuing to read the, to read this story. I mean, the art was good, so that was another good plus. It's hard to be as gorgeous as the game is, though. And I think that that's one place where, where you'll go, okay, well, the comic's, the comic's nice, but the game is so much more beautiful. I mean, you're talking about... PlayStation 4 rendering here, and I don't think that's a fair comparison. I mean, the art is pretty darn good, so I don't think you can really judge it based on how the game looks. And the world is pretty, it opens the world up a little bit too, which I also like. I think, I hope the comic does that a little bit more. So, Horizon Zero Dawn, not quite as psyched about it as I wanted to be, but I'm hoping that that changes as more issues come out. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Disney's doing something very interesting with the Mulan movie. We'll talk about it with Nerd News. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, I'm Trey Romano from DC's Stargirl, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. So is this going to be a plus or a minus? It's time for Nerd News, and you know I'm talking about Mulan, right? The fact that according to Variety, the Mulan live-action movie and something that I never thought was going to happen is actually going to hit Disney Plus on September the 4th and it will also be in select theaters in certain areas by the way. I'll just put that out there, but here's the deal with this. There is a catch. It's going to be available as part of a new premiere access feature that is going to cost you 29.99. Now, here's the deal. You see arguments on both sides, right? The argument of, well, that's too expensive, I'm not paying that. And that's certainly valid. It's also just as valid for somebody who has a family at home. And if you're taking the whole family to see the movie plus concessions and stuff like that, you know, 30 bucks seems like 
a bit of a bargain. Now, before I get into the financial ramifications of this, it appears that this is not going to be like a one-time rental. They say, okay, well, once this is in your Disney Plus, once you pay the 30 bucks, this will be in your Disney Plus account, and you can watch as much as you want. That seems fine, right? It seems like a nice thing to say, but you and I both know this movie would hit Disney Plus eventually anyway for regular subscribers, right? This is just a I don't want to wait fee, basically, because it's not like they're going to hold this movie just for people who are willing to spend the $30 forever. The, you have to know that, right? You have to know that event. And, and Disney hasn't pulled a lot of stuff from Disney Plus either. This is all their content. This is not like it's stuff that has been, you know, brought, brought in from other companies to your streaming service, like Peacock bringing in the Harry Potter movies from Warner Brothers. You had to pay Warner Brothers to get those movies on there, right? So that that's, you know, that's obviously not going to stay there forever, and that will eventually go away. That's just one example. But Disney's not bringing in rented content, basically. There, this is Disney Plus is all stuff that they own, that they have the rights to, and it's their babies, and, and pretty much everything has been on there, right? Now, Disney also loves to vault things. I understand that. You know, you put it in the vault for like a year, two years, and then they bring it back out. But this just feels different to me, right? Disney Plus has felt different in that regard, and that it seems like they just want to say, all right, you know what? Here. Now, did they have all the Star Wars movies available at launch? No, they didn't. They do now. Do you think they'll pull them eventually? Doubtful. Now that they're on there, I think that they're on there. And they might not have released everything right away, but they've done it this time. So eventually this thing's going to hit Disney Plus for free. And then how are you going to feel about spending that 30 bucks? Also, it's not just 30 bucks either, by the way. It's 30 bucks plus the cost of whatever your subscription is, right? Because you're still going to have to have a prescription, excuse me, subscription to access this movie. And what happens if you have to cancel? Bye-bye movie. It's not like they're going to give you a digital copy code and be like, oh, sorry, you're canceling here since you bought Mulan. Here, here's a digital copy code to go get it on another digital retailer because we owe it to you. No, that's not going to, that's likely not going to happen, okay? So it's almost like there, it's almost like a way of forcing yourself to keep that subscription. And I realize that subscription services aren't, aren't completely expensive, right? But, you know, you fall on hard times and you need a few bucks somewhere and you need to cut something. Maybe Disney Plus at some point is going to be something that you just have to cut. And if you leave and come back, do you get Mulan back in your, in your subscription service? These are all questions that we, ha we haven't actually gotten the answers to yet. And... You know, CEO Bob Chapek of Disney has actually said, you know, we don't have all the details yet. More of the details will be coming at some point. Also says that this is going to be a one-time thing. Okay. Well, I'll get to that in a second as well. But here's the deal. Honestly, I mean, I think $30 is a little steep. But Disney's always 5 bucks more expensive than everybody else on everything, right? You, they, they, you add $5 for the – it's almost like the Disney – where we feel like we're better fee kind of thing, you know. It's like, well, you know, you yes, you have that, but we're we're better, so we can charge more and get away with it. And they could also vault their movies and then bring them back out, reformatted, and then charge you again for them. And you and you buy them, right? And Disney knows this. Disney knows you're going to spend your money on this. But 
yeah, they have 60.5 million subscribers to Disney Plus, according to that in- investor call that they just had, and according to the to multiple reports that have come out about this. Disney's banking on the fact that I'm guessing they feel like maybe 10% of them, maybe a little higher, because you want to get that 10 million mark, right? So hopefully a, they're thinking, okay, maybe a sixth of our audience is going to want to rent this Mulan movie, and then there's your $300 million, right? So there's your $300 million, and now you've made your money back, basically. If you get 10 million people at $30 a pop, that's $300 million, and you've made your money back now because Mulan had a budget of $250 million, if I'm not mistaken. So, And then they're thinking, okay, well, maybe we can get a little bit more than that. And then all of a sudden, you start turning a bigger profit, and you go, well, what would we have made in a pandemic-era theater anyway? So this seems like a way for Disney to make more money than they might have on this movie as a feature in theaters because you don't know that this movie would have been hugely successful in the theaters, even under normal circumstances. If it had a bad first week, as far as people saying, well, this movie isn't good on word of mouth, right? And I'm not saying it won't be. I haven't seen it. I don't know. But if the if the word of mouth reviews weren't good for this movie week one, sure, it still would have probably made like $120 million, but you cut that by more than half if people didn't enjoy this movie and then all of a sudden you're staring a potential loss in the face or certainly not as much money as you would have made. So if you can get $500 million out of this based on this $30 fee, then you still have to consider that a success, right? Wouldn't you? It's especially if you're going to make your money back on the production budget domestically, which doesn't always happen for all movies anyway. Now, you're still going to bring in money from the inter- international markets, as well, so Disney's going to make their money one way or another, and believe it or not, their their profits. There's been various reports that they've lost billions of dollars already this year because of the pandemic. And given all factors, you sort of understand that that could be true, right? I mean, that certainly could be a realistic number, even in such a short time frame. You could see how that could happen. So they need to make money on this movie, and if they do. Bob Chappie can say whatever he wants. If this is a hugely successful endeavor, then they will do this again for Black Widow, in my opinion. And they might do this for New Mutants. And and I don't want to hear the Artemis Fowl argument, right? Well, well, they released Artemis Fowl on Disney+. Plus. Why are they charging us for Mulan? Because you can't even compare the, do, the two. That's why. You, you're really going to compare... Artemis Fowl, and I know people love the books. I get it. I'm not dogging the character or the storyline. I'm not. What I'm saying is is that this is a Disney storyline that they own that was a that was a classic animated feature that people loved that they're turning into a live-action movie. You cannot compare that to Artemis Fowl. Not at all. So do you can't make that comparison. My My worry about this is... If we let Disney get away with this, right, what's to keep them from adopting this model for everything after this? What's to keep them from going, oh, well, you know, we don't need to support places like Voodoo and Movies Anywhere anymore because we're just going to keep our stuff on Disney+. Plus. That'll be your new locker for Disney movies. We're not going to let you combine it with all this other stuff. And I'm not saying that this is what they're going to do. 
And this also could open the door for other subscription services to do the same thing. Like with like, you know, what's to keep HBO Max from saying, you know, well, you know, if, if you want to see the Batman, you're going to have to go to HBO Max because we're not going to put it out on demand, at least not right away. Or we're not going to do the, if you're, you know, any number Universal could do the same thing with Peacock because it's NBC Universal, maybe with a Jurassic World 3 or something like that. If if you get to the point where you're allowing streaming services to charge you extra to own stuff and charging you and essentially charging you a monthly fee to keep your digital lockers of movies, that is a Pandora's box I don't want to see get opened. So part of me wants this to succeed and part of me doesn't. I'd much rather support the video on demand option like what Bill and Ted's doing. By the way, that movie moving up to August 28th, probably because of Mulan being released on September the 4th. So good, smart move once again for them. They're doing it right. Several other companies have done it right where you own the movie, not just a one-time rental thing. Even the one-time rentals for 20 bucks didn't really bother me. But I, I just worry that if this Disney model succeeds and all of the sudden you're giving them $30 and yeah, you get to keep this movie that's going to be free eventually anyway, but now they're basically charging you a fee to keep movies that you supposedly own and I just feel like that is a slippery slope that we have to be really, really careful of. And again, not saying that that's what we're going to do, what they're going to do. My opinion alone, I'm just saying that keep your eyes on this and be careful what you wish for. Wasn't a whole lot of news this week, but we had a few trailers drop. One of them was really, really interesting, by the way. It's called Raised by Wolves, a series that's going to be coming to HBO Max. And it's the first television series directed by Ridley Scott in the U.S. That's pretty cool, right? You know, Ridley Scott of Aliens and other things of that nature. And this has just such a cool sci-fi vibe to it. It really does. And Ridley Scott actually directed the first couple of episodes. And it's basically a story that, you know, you put in reverse of what you usually see. It centers around two androids tasked with raising human children on a mysterious virgin planet as the virgin colony of humans threatens to be torn apart by religious differences, the androids learn that controlling the beliefs of humans is treacherous and a difficult task. Now, that's the synopsis that was released by HBO Max. Here's the thing, though. Usually we see that in reverse, right? It's humans trying to control androids or artificial intelligence. Now we're seeing this in the reverse way, and I think it's really, really cool to flip the script like that. And by the way, this younger generation has no idea about the older generation of humans that were wiped out, by the way, by by some apocalyptic event. So that's another little nugget to drop into this whole storyline. So it just looks very cool. It's got this dystopian vibe to it. If you see the trailer, if, if you're a Vikings fan, yes, you do see Travis Fimmel. And it's like, okay, well, is he the big bad? Or are these androids themselves, are they the bad guys? Who's the bad guy here? Because it looks like it's obvious and maybe it's not. But there's a lot of star power in here. You've got Ivy Wong from Star Wars Rogue One. You've also got Amanda Collins from A Conspiracy Theory. You've got so many others from some big-time projects. I mean, Ethan Hazard from Long Summer and Damned. There, there's just so many great names in this cast. It just looks like a really, really cool, funky sci-fi adventure that that just feels like it's something different that we're not really seeing on TV right now. It feels very cinematic, and that's something that, I mean, HBO Max 
if you're looking for something major to get people's attention, it could be Raised by Wolves. So the series is going to premiere on HBO Max on September the 3rd. Netflix actually introduced a couple of series as well. How about the a prequel story for one of the most famous nurses in literature? You know I'm talking about Nurse Ratched, right? And Ratched is the name of the series that's going to be coming to Netflix that will tell Mildred Ratched's origin story. And it's going to be from one of the creators of American Horror Story, too, by the way. I love the fact that they're going to do that. I mean, the series itself was actually created by Evan Romansky, but it was actually also produced by some of the people that did American Horror Story. So, And this is actually going to come out on September the 18th. We're going to go all the way back to 1947, where Mildred actually arrives in Northern California. She's going to seek employment at a leading psychiatric hospital there, and we kind of get to see her slow descent into madness, as it were, right? And you see in this trailer, this trailer is going to really, you want to talk about American Horror Story vibes. I got creeped the hell out watching this trailer. It makes you, you get wonky, right? And And you get a little bit sideways, and you can almost... And part of this is the music, too. Whoever scored this did a fantastic job. And you kind of see things start to unravel for for Ratchet, even in the trailer for the series. You see how she kind of gets pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And it's also the, the, the time of year where this is taking place. She talks about being a nurse in the war, presumably World War II, right? And, and how much of an effect did that have on her descent into madness as well. It's just going to be a really cool origin story based on uh, the character from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And and you've got Sarah Paulson playing Mildred Ratched, by the way. And how do you argue with that? Cynthia Nixon is a part of this cast as well. you got Finn Whitrock is a part of this cast. Amanda Plummer. There's just so many. Again, Vincent D'Onofrio, by the way, is part of this cast too. If you want to, you know, wave your hands up in the air and say, "Hey, yeah, Vincent D'Onofrio here as well." There's so many great members of this cast. It just looks like it's going to be something that's going to be super creepy and super interesting. I can't wait to see where this one goes. They've also got an adult animated comedy series that's going to be coming to Netflix on August the 21st, and it's called Hoops, and it's going to star, at least voice wise, anyway. Jake Johnson, who you know from New Girl and you know from Stumptown and, of course, Spider-Man into Spider-Verse. But he's going to be joined by a lot of his New Girl cast members as well. It's almost like a reunion. Max Greenfield's going to be doing one of the voices for the series. Damon Wayans Jr., Hannah Simone. Guy Fieri's going to be in this too, which I think is going to be really, really interesting. You wouldn't necessarily... I don't think an episode of of Dinos, Drive-Ins, and Dives is going to break out into this because we're talking about basketball, right? And you got Jake Johnson. He's the foul-mouthed high school basketball coach. His, his team's awful. His life sucks kind of thing, right? He's, he's sort of a legacy. His dad's a big shot, and he's a high school basketball coach who can't seem to get his life together until he feel, figures out, well, you know, maybe if this team ends up being good, then I can get to the big, I can get to the big leagues. I can finally get my shot. And this trailer just said so many funny moments in it. I mean, it's one of those things where you, you laughed and you you almost didn't want to laugh, but you did anyway at a couple of these things. Yeah, it's going to be very, a, a very adult 
animated series created by Ben Hoffman, by the way. And Phil Lord and Chris Miller are actually involved as producers in this, too. I should kind of point that out. And it, it almost looks like a like a like a family guy style animation, almost like a, a Bob's Burgers style. It's going to be really raunchy. It's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to see this one coming out on August the 21st. Really quick, I kind of made that crack about Freeform in the show or a little bit earlier. And yeah, they canceled Siren after three seasons. This was first reported by Deadline, confirmed by TV Line after that. And it was kind of shocking because Siren was one of the top rated shows on Freeform. And they went, nah, no thanks. Yeah, I mean, they are bringing back Motherland, Fort Salem. So there's that. But it's like, it was very kind of a head scratcher. And maybe you cancel, maybe the reason for the cancellation wasn't necessarily ratings. Maybe there were, were, there were financial implications there as far as budgets were concerned. Maybe they're thinking, how do I shoot this series during a pandemic? That's also a possible part of this thing as well. Because you got to start thinking about what can be shot with new regulations they're going to be coming up or maybe they just thought the story wasn't going to go where they to, to a good place in a fourth season. I'm absolutely not justifying this because I think Siren is a very unique and well-told story that deserved another season. And certainly plenty of very passionate fans wanted to see a fourth season of this series. And if something was doing well in the ratings, you know, challenge or no challenge, why don't you keep that show? That's the thing that I can't quite understand. It's like, I don't see the reasons for not bringing this show back are not completely obvious to me. And I'm wondering if at some point after I'm done recording this podcast and you guys are listening to it, we're going to find out, oh, that's why they canceled it. Maybe that'll become a little bit clearer as we, you know, as some, some time passes a little bit. And maybe they maybe they were looking to, maybe they had a better show in mind to bring in and something had to go and they chose Siren is that thing that had to go. So we'll have to see what's announced is coming next from Freeform because that could make all the difference as well. Maybe there was another show they felt more strongly about that had sort of a similar vibe. So you got to, you know, you got to get Siren out of the way. Maybe they feel like three seasons was a good run. But Freeform's been known to cancel series a little bit earlier than most or earlier than, than fans thought that they should. Although fans typically tend to think that shows shouldn't be canceled anyway, so maybe that's not fair. But Freeform doesn't hang on to shows for a long time. And maybe that we just need to realize that, and we need to understand that going in. If you're going to be a fan of a Freeform show, you might not get a ton of seasons out of it. So it's almost like a enjoy it while it lasts sort of situation. And will it be saved? I don't know if it'll be saved. Only time will tell, but I'll keep an ear out for that and let you know. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. That's it for Nerd News. Hopefully you liked the new format this week. And again, thank you to Neil Jackson for joining me to talk about DC's Stargirl and Icicle and everything that happened this season. Can't wait for that season finale coming up on Monday on DC Universe and 8 o'clock on Tuesday on The CW. It's going to be amazing. I've seen it already. It, it, you're, you're going to be blown away by it. No doubt about it. If you want to hear more from us, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. You can catch past shows there. My other interviews from DC's Stargirl are up there. Also, follow along on social media, too, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram, and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly 
and be good to your fellow nerds.